Hello and thank you once again for joining us on this edition of the Steadcast. This edition of the Steadcast is going to be a little bit longer, but I encourage you to stay with us because we have a truly fascinating guest in the nature of Kieran's friend, Jake Shelley. Now, he has done a lot of things, hasn't he? What's he done? He is... Well, he's run incredibly fast in his own right on the track and on the roads. He's an Oxford graduate. He works in anti-doping. Uh, well, studied in America as well, didn't he? Yeah, he studied in America. And we go through kind of Jake's whole journey in running and life. And we also take a really fascinating deep dive into his experiences with anti-doping, as well as some of his thoughts and opinions on the recent big news items within anti-doping. I think that's all we need to say. Enjoy. Okay, so our guest today is 1346 5K man and anti-doping expert Jake Shelley. Jake finished fifth in the 5,000 meters in the 2019 edition of the British Champs slash World Trials and is now fresh off of running a 2946 10K at Telford 10K. So welcome to the podcast, Jake. Thank you for having me. Hello. No problem at all. It's great to have you on. So we'll dive straight in um, and we'll talk about, well, actually we won't dive straight in. We'll have some pleasantries. We already had some kind of off air, <laughs> but <laughs> how are you feeling after coming off of Telford last week? Uh, all right. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I've had a decent week of training this week. I, I wore the, the special shoes and they seem to have uh, saved my legs a little bit. Ooh, they've propelled <laughs> you to that sub 30. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, the, yeah. So I, the race wasn't quite as good as I was hoping, but. I have come off it okay and have done yeah two and a half good sessions and some decent miles this week so yeah all good go. that's Thank awesome you. no that's good you've bounced off yeah. it yeah it looked like a pretty brutal race to be fair it was a really fast uh first half from what i saw and then just a case of kind of hanging on really exactly yeah i probably like i've had a bit of an up and down first half of the winter with a few niggles but i decided to just kind of go with it and have a go at running under 29 minutes and went through halfway on the correct pace for that and then suffered quite a lot in the second half. Uh, <laughs> Just a case of gritting your teeth as hard as you could exactly. and seeing what was left in the but, tank. Exactly. Well, you never exactly. know until you try as well. So, no, that's good. Yeah. That'll probably bring would, you on as well for next time as well. Yeah, and I'd rather have done that than, you know, been more conservative and then regretted not trying. So, glad I, glad I gave it a go at least. Exactly, exactly. It's, yeah, it's better to have tried to run 20, sub-29 and run 29.46 <laughs> than try to run 29.30 and run that. So, And we, yeah, we all know I that you've so. run quick before. Jake's PB is 29.23, is it, on the roads? Very good, yeah, that's correct. <laughs> yeah, trust me, I've not got that good of a memory. It's written down in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, which, actually, if we're talking stats, three seconds faster than your 10K PB on the track as well, which is... is a, less and less rare these days a lot of people are running really quick on the roads these days i do like having that track pb though for when someone says that the course is downhill or short and you're like well yeah i've <laughs> pretty much the same on the on the track as well so. yeah exactly <laughs> well i need to get my pbs a little bit in line because my road pb is a lot slower than the track one but i'm sure they'll i'm sure they'll come together as i'm sure your track pb will get much faster the next time you run one as well because uh, fingers crossed yeah exactly yeah. um but speak, well, speaking of your running career and things like that, I want to just kind of rewind all the way back to how you got started in running. So sort of how old were you when you started running and how seriously did you take it? Yeah. Um, my older sister joined Shaftesbury Barnet Harriers um, when she was about 13 or 14 and I'm two years younger than her. So, and I followed on soon afterwards, okay. although I wasn't as good as her um, initially. Uh, I wasn't particularly good at all. Like I know, Kieran, you were a very good 
youth athlete and won stuff. I didn't really win much um, or anything, um, but I, st- I stuck at it and I got more and more keen on it as I developed. And, and my dad had been a sort of recreational runner. He's done 10 marathons and, and he's, his best time is about three hours. And he had lots of running books in the house and I, I got a bit obsessed with some of those. I read Ron Hill's autobiographies when I was a teenager and I, I'm I don't still know yet to read them, that. But... I really want to read that one. But yeah, uh, yeah, it's a mad book, but it's brilliant and really inspiring. And I just sort of caught the running bug, and then that's that's been me for life. Really, I've uh, very much got the running bug, and yeah, <laughs> I don't particularly like days without running now. Uh, I don't have very many of them, and they don't feel right when I do have them. So yeah, no, yeah. I definitely, I definitely feel you on that one. I had a uh, an almost a, a very heavily encouraged rest day that i reluctantly took uh, a couple of days ago so i know what you mean with that and yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's it's good to hear somebody that sort of just started out running just because they liked doing it like they just ran for fun mm-hmm. and now have run the times that you've run and have seen the success that you've seen it's inspirational i think for people that might be thinking about getting into the sport well without foreshadow yeah. without foreshadowing you know talking about drugs too much I once heard a quote somewhere that said something like running is an addiction. They say a day with it is just another day, but a day without it is always a bad day. And I, <laughs> I thought I thought that as a, as a parallel was uh, was quite interesting. <laughs> there we go. Well, I think the type of drugs that Jake uh, works with is a little bit his, different. Yeah. His, yeah, they're not <laughs> the quite non- as addictive. The, the non-addictive type. No, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. And so when you started off running, were you playing other sports and everything as well? Or were you quite early on quite sort of like running is my sport that's what I want to do that's what I enjoy no I played football for quite a long time it's a reasonable standard um and I had a lot of quite tiring weekends when I do a cross-country race on Saturday and then a football match on Sunday and then just be absolutely wrecked on Sunday (laughs) oh wow yeah Um, I actually I knew Um, some people when I was growing up they would do that but then they would still do their long run on the Sunday it was absolutely insane they'd still do a football match in the morning and then get out in the afternoon for an hour's run yeah I didn't do that at all but um, (laughs) good that's probably why you're still around yeah after a year or two of that I was like I'm better at running than I am at football you know Mm -hmm. I I, I made English schools as an intermediate boy in 1500 and then like when I was in year 12, I came seventh in English schools, 3000. Wow. So somewhere between sort of year 10 and year 12, I stopped playing football and decided that I was better at running and I enjoyed being good and I enjoyed running itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't enjoy the, the sort of politics of football, you know, like not, you know, feeling like I should be picked and played every game and yeah. not always having that happen. Um, and, you know, having control of my own destiny. Exactly. I think that's what quite a lot. I mean, you've, you've followed a very traditional, uh, a very traditional British path into elite endurance running is pretty much everyone I know started off as a football player as well. Um, and yeah, you kind of answered the question that I was going to ask you is, yeah, when did you first start getting that kind of sniff of success and start taking it a little bit more kind of seriously? So then that took you pretty much until the end of your school career. And then you went off to, was it Oxford university that you went to? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, honestly, that was, I haven't got that written down. It was a stab in the dark between Oxford <laughs> and Cambridge. I knew it was one of them and I knew the wrong answer would have been deadly. <laughs> how was, how did your running kind of take, uh, did it, did the extra studying and academic stress of going to a university like Oxford take a toll on your running at all? It, it did a bit actually. Um, mm. I found that I did better at running. So I did better at university when I was injured from running 
and did better at running when I was doing bad at university. <laughs> Classic, yeah. Well, they say but you yeah, can only have sort... a certain amount of things in your life as well. I mean, you've got studying, you've got running, you've got having a social life, having a love life. Yeah. It's it's hard to yeah. balance it all. Exactly. I think that's it's very true. That you, you can only, it all comes from the same pool of energy, doesn't it? Exactly. Um, um, but so I ran okay there, but I still think that the four years I spent there were the hardest i've ever worked in my life despite now like having a job and doing a phd at the same time but just in terms of the hours i spent studying mm-hmm. i worked more hours then than i do now probably I, mean, I probably wasn't quite i probably wasn't quite as efficient in my study um mm. and well, i wasn't used to away is. from home exactly but it, it was quite stressful and it and it and i didn't develop as much as i might have done Mm-hmm. But I think from As what you're runner. saying, it's, it sounds like you kind of calloused yourself to be able to really work hard uh, during that time. And that may have taken effect kind of later on in life. And as yeah. well, like Oxford has a pretty rich history with uh, with running clubs and things like that, just because it was one of the first universities to form sports clubs. So how was representing the university for that side of things? Like it's quite a pretty big honor to to be able to be on that Oxford cross country and track team. Yeah, there was some great stuff. And the best thing that's come out of it is that I have my lifelong friends from the Oxford University Cross Country and Athletics Clubs. Um, guys other like guys like Luke Caldwell and Andy mm-hmm. Hayes, Tom Frith, Will Mycroft, who are, are still some of my best friends to this day. Um, and yeah, who I've been through this running journey with from like start to finish, which is, is, is nice. Um, oh, definitely. So that's one of the big positives I take out of my time in, in, that, in the university club. And also, we did a, a tour to Harvard and Yale and Penn and Cornell, uh, which I've, was an amazing. Yeah, I have heard about that. That sounds so cool. Yeah, that and it amazing. kind of introduced me to the American Collegiate System, which was another um, nice thing to see for my future experiences in that <laughs> system as well. I have a very quick question I want to jump in with, and this all yes. comes just purely as of timing around this. Um, around recording this pod is funny enough my little sister who's just turned 18 has had an mm-hmm. interview she's just had two interviews at oxford so um, can you get her in well can, yeah can you get her in <laughs> that'd be nice no but my next question i was asking though is oh, we have a yeah we had picture of like the um sort of layout of all the colleges and things and i know they've got obviously lots of little courtyards scattered around and i'm sure in yeah. one of the prestigious universities in the uk they've got that it's like a courtyard and there's a bell that rings twice and no one's ever managed to run around the whole courtyard i know what you're talking do, about do you know what i'm talking about yeah yeah is, is that is Someone's that in oxford seen chariots of fire yeah is that in oxford it's, it's, i think it's in cambridge Ooh. yeah it is. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not in oxford Ooh. yeah I'm, it is yeah it's I'm cambridge, sorry. That's the... i could never remember which one it is and it's do you know it's really funny because i've literally as i record this i've just was I was with my sister about an hour ago, and I asked her that question. She goes, "I can't remember if it's this one or that one." So it's just <laughs> it's just bizarrely coincidental that um, that that's come up. But yeah. at least at least I've had my uh, my question answered properly now, and I won't make that mistake again. Oxford and Cambridge people <laughs> who are listening. Yeah, we're gonna we're probably gonna offend a lot of Oxbridge people, <laughs> but that's all right. No, yeah, that's the that's the that's scene fine. from Chariots of Fire, isn't it? That's right. With, yeah. um, do you know, I really I should know the guy's name, but I don't. Um, but I know that they did have like kind of a, a fun run type of version of that with Seb Coe and maybe even Steve Ovet at some point in like the eighties. Do you remember anything about that, Jake? Or have you seen? There was that something... does ring a bell. Yeah, I think it yeah. might have been Steve Cram. Oh, Cram. Yeah, 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 that's it. Yeah, it I'm not Coe sure they got Cram. around it. It's, it's quite tight, isn't it? The turns and stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know loads about it, but it's uh, yeah. Quite no, exactly. Thing. 
But no, um, so moving on anyway, so you've, you're done with your time at Oxford, you've, you've got a degree from one of the most prestigious universities in the world, and then you moved out to the US to the University of New Mexico for your postgrad education and a chance to be a student athlete. So talk about the just how different life out there in the NCAA system was versus yeah. studying at such a high pressure environment of yeah. Oxford. Oh, it was a lot more fun, really, mm-hmm. um, for a start. So that was not, I mean, we just chilled out. I lived with other runners, um, and we had more downtime, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, to watch Netflix and run mileage and stuff <laughs> like that. And that, obviously, that I like to do. <laughs> obviously, judging from the times that you had, had quite a positive <laughs> impact on your running, because from the outside yeah. looking in, it looks like you really did take off when you got to New Mexico. Um and what would you really attribute that to? The extra recovery time or I know you're at altitude yeah, was, there. Joe Franklin yeah. obviously is a famously good coach. But yeah, talk a little yes. bit about that. No, so there were a number of factors involved with me getting better going out there. I think one of the key factors was being less stressed and being better rested. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it wasn't just me who experienced this. The, the, the year before I went to New Mexico, one of my friends from Oxford, Luke Caldwell, moved to New Mexico. Yes, and he, and he took he his PB did really well out there. Yeah, in in one race he took his five k PB from fourteen thirty seven to thirteen forty. Wow! And that's and, that's and quite incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. And basically, he was, I think, just really really tired the whole time. At Oxford. He was also mm-hmm. the cross country club captain. He did a he did a physics degree and got quite a high classification <laughs> in that. I think. And I think, and then he, he moved to New Mexico and. He did a physics masters at New Mexico, which for most people would still have been quite demanding. But, I think but for yeah, him, coming it was... from coming from Oxford and all of those other duties as being club captain, exactly. Like that. Yeah, it was probably easy work for him. Yeah, but but you're right to credit Joe because Joe was a mastermind in that we didn't train that hard. Mm. We were all we we were all quite talented, and basically what he had us do was run for about an hour a day and then do two moderate sessions, you know, one moderate session and one longish tempo run in a, in a beautiful environment to run, send us up into the foothills once a week and make sure we didn't get carried away, basically. Yeah, which and, is, I mean, that's, <laughs> I think that's going to be such an odd thing for a lot of people to hear because in the UK, you very it's very easy to get stuck in that system of let's do three hard sessions a week, let's do a long yeah. run and let's run like, let's run, steady and fast on our in-between yeah. days a lot of people yeah. really undervalue recovery and like you say they're running tired all the time in the english system yeah. but yeah like you say the american system places a lot more kind of focus on recovery and you are able to be less stressed so you're able to recover a little faster a little better exactly. and how much would you yeah. credit as well being able to get into really high profile races so things like stanford oxy matsack yeah. that's huge i think the, the the whole competition structure I, I think I've heard people say before about the NCA system that it overraces people and that it, it burns them out. But I I've thought heard the that as well. It doesn't. It doesn't perfect. Yeah. No. Me too. I mean, indoors can be a little bit demanding sometimes, but the the whole over racing thing. It's you have the whole summer off to build a base. If you yeah. if you can build that base, you're strong enough to go from. Yeah. When do you start racing cross country? Late September, and then you have a little bit of yeah. a break in December, and then you go from January through till. I mean, it's. It's no different, really, than an English system. It's no. just a different time of year. But no, carry on. And it was also exciting, wasn't it, and motivating. And, and there was always a goal, like you wanted to qualify for the NCAA National Championships. You wanted to do exactly. well at the NCAA National Championships. And it kept you ro- rolling through the year, and you could pick up momentum season after season. And, there was, yeah, 
always so many like big exciting races and opportunities exactly and i think and... Ha- having having that motivating competition structure is like absolutely key no definitely like, you were talking I... about last week with the goal setting and all that and yeah there's so many obvious goals to aim for in america yeah i found it quite i found it fairly easy running a three sister a three season kind of year because like you say yeah mm-hmm. there's always that motivation there's always what feels like a big target even though generally you train quite big mileage and you don't really taper for races indoors at least in the system that I was in and I think a few others that I've sort of heard of and spoken to athletes and coaches about but you kind of you're still in your base season through indoors but you still have those targets there so you still have that kind of that focus and that gratification with things like the NCAA Mm -hmm. championships or going out to Boston or Washington or something and running a fast race and all of that Another thing as well is I found the summer grind of building mileage much easier than the winter grind that we're used to here of building mileage because it's just so easy to get out the door when it's nice. Yeah, definitely. I um, mean, from hearing, yeah. just just to jump in, from hearing what you guys have both said about the system, it sounds that the overall atmosphere seems a little bit more relaxed. You've said it focuses on recovery maybe more so than something in the UK. And I know that certainly for me if I feel more relaxed in my runs it is going to be easier to kind of motivate yourself towards a big goal like a race rather than if you think you know you feel burnt out because you've done all these sessions or you're doing masters and you've got uni you know, if, if you've got less eggs in the basket you can focus a lot more on the race at the end that's certainly what it sounds like just from hearing you guys chat about it for five minutes yeah I think you're right there I think I'd probably go with controlled rather than relaxed I don't know okay. about I don't yeah, know about you Jake mm-hmm. but yeah I felt like it was yeah. always if you train at 80%, you can then race at 110%, basically. Yeah, I'd go along with that, Kieran, for sure. And, and and you do have to be controlled when you get a group of very talented, very competitive 18 to 22-year-olds and well, yeah. more in the group, group <laughs> yeah. together. Exactly. You have I to mean, make sure that it doesn't get out of hand. At any one time on a team like Iona, where I was, or New Mexico, you've got you know five to ten guys that can break 14 minutes in the 5K, and some of them may or may not have done it, but they're able to train mm-hmm. at that level and yeah it's so easy to just get carried away and run each other into the ground which some yeah. some people inadvertently do and have been known to do and i think that is part of the stigma that the ncaa system sometimes has to deal with a little bit but if you listen to the coaches and you follow their instructions carefully and stay under controlling your sessions like the races are there and it's it's just so easy to reap the benefits of that but moving on from the NCAA system, when you came back home, how did you find that kind of readjustment type of period? Because I know it's something that I, str- I struggled with a little bit and a lot of other athletes have. But yeah, I was just wondering how it was for you personally. It's a, it's a really difficult period, isn't it? Um, it really is. Uh, and I'm really interested to see how everyone copes with it coming back. And I always take an interest in the guys coming back from the NCAAs and seeing how they manage it. I, 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 um, I ran 13.46 that spring before I graduated mm-hmm. and I wanted to have a go that was in 2015 and I wanted to you know have a go at trying to run an Olympic standard in 2016 it was a long shot but I wanted to give myself the best chance yeah, so I well you miss about... all the shots you don't take so no I admire exactly. that and I didn't actually yeah. I didn't actually know that but carry on yeah so I so I inquired about um joining professional teams I inquired with Team New Balance Manchester that was probably my first choice Mm-hmm. Um, but failing that option, I, I, the other options were all in the US. Uh, I had an option to go and train with Lee Troop in the Boulder Track Club, or to go and train with Brenda Martinez and be coached by her husband Carlos in California. 
Okay. And that was the option that I went with uh, to stay at altitude. And there was a new group. Boris Berrien was there and three yeah. other guys joined at the same time I joined. And we all lived in a house together at a slightly higher altitude than Albuquerque. And okay, a slightly no, really different cool. tra- training method. And I was really probably as fit as I've ever been. And I trained from I trained in Big Bear from like September through to the new year. And I ran an OK mile. So basically, I rolled straight from college into that system. I was like, "This is going great. Mm-hmm. I've kept the continuity Keep going." The and then I got stress. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then I got a stress fracture, oh. kind of inev- inevitably, <laughs> almost. Yeah, yeah well, that's... because I was training harder. And this um... is the problem: is you get into the shape of your life, and that's when you're most vulnerable for injury. But that's interesting. I actually didn't know that about you. So, how long were you yeah. kind of out there following that system for? Uh, it, in the end, it was only six or seven months or so, mm-hmm. and. The trouble with it was I didn't quite have the balance in my life. I, I didn't have really any meaningful work in that time, which I found difficult having, you know, always been quite academically motivated. Yes, definitely. Uh, and how and are I, you and, kind of funding yourself when you're out there as well? Was it just whatever you had left over from college or working in a shoe store? It, or? It, it was a little bit of that. And yeah, I did some part-time work, but I didn't have the right visa to get any sort of meaningful work. So mm. I, it was more just kind of jobs on the side and again trying to do races and stuff to win a bit of cash but it wasn't um i didn't find it fulfilling just being a runner kind of thing and and also i just had too much time on my hands to train too hard so i got injured so the balance of my life wasn't quite right yeah and i think i realized that yeah i was going to say living that kind of slightly staggered sounding approach to things it must be frustrating especially if things like politics like visas and things like that get in the way of you being able to kind of relax and go down one path or the other that must always be something that you know makes getting up and going for a run that, that touch harder than it might be if you knew that was all completely you know completely okay yeah, yeah. no definitely and I it's, think- it's so hard it i'm you probably know as much if not more than i do i mean i tried to get the opt visa and couldn't even get that so mm-hmm. uh, yeah the visa situation in america i get where they're coming from with it but it's so tough for anyone without the correct yeah. kind of it doesn't basically meet all of their parameters to stay there and be able to to chase the dream like you were able to uh so from there yeah. you move back home and yeah That's just right. quickly go from quickly from there until your current setup now what were kind of the steps that you took and yeah, yeah. how did you move it's, from it, one thing to the other yeah it still took a bit of time to settle into a routine that i was happy with and, and my I've, I've got a very supportive family so they were helpful with it um I lived at home for a little bit mm-hmm. after moving back to, from America, which I hadn't, I hadn't lived at home for, you know, like six or seven years. So that was interesting. <laughs> it's yeah, it's fine, a shock actually. to the system, yeah. isn't it? I, it is. I've recently yeah. gone through that myself as well. So <laughs> I know yeah. how you feel. But I have very nice parents. So I was lucky with that. And uh, <laughs> Same, by the way. A, shout uh, out mum and dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. They're important. As, as um, we record in their house, I might add. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so then I, I worked as a teacher for a year um, at an independent hospital school, mm-hmm. which is kind of an interesting job for for a year. Yeah, that's quite. Cool. And during that year, I applied for um, PhDs, and yeah, weighed up a couple of different options, and um, then I got the PhD that I'm currently doing, which is down in Kingston in Southwest London, mm-hmm. and I moved down to this part of London to do that. Um, and then about a year into my PhD, I also took on this. Uh, one day per week role with the rugby football union as the anti-doping program officer there and that sort of brings us to my current setup which is one that i do find is quite nicely balanced and allows me to 
earn a living and do meaningful work that I enjoy whilst also fitting in my training and trying to fit in the recovery as well. That's awesome. I must say, as, as somebody who's recently gone through kind of a professional change in, in the rely of, you know, going from full-time hours down to part-time hours for at what I'd call a day job and then being able to have time to focus on the pursuits that I want to I want to do with my media and things like that I can empathize so much with that it makes everything feel so much better so it's really it's good to hear that you know somebody like yourself who clearly has a drive and takes on a you know call it a hobby call it a profession like running you know whichever way whichever category you feel you fall into at the moment Mm -hmm. having that balance is just so much better so it's really relieving to hear that you can you know make the most out of all your pursuits yeah yeah, it's, good. it's a good setup. And that is actually one of the, you know, when I said that I'm interested in seeing how the guys who come back from the NCAA manage. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I look for is the guys who have settled into a job that is the correct intensity. Do you know what I mean? There's, there are guys who slot straight into like full-time jobs in the city, which might be yes, very difficult no, to manage running. And then there are guys who don't have anything, which again is in a different way, quite tricky to manage. And it seems to be the guys who find their feet quickest are the ones who find that right work environment yeah that's no you've hit the nail exactly on the head as one of those guys who jumped straight into full-time employment hated that and then jumped straight into full-time running and also didn't really reap the benefits of that I feel like I'm in the best place now where I'm kind of working with my business part-time with my coaching business and I'm taking a sports massage car course and I'm going to get into that as just you need to feel a certain amount of hours in the day but also reserve a certain amount for training and recovery and things like that uh the last question i want to ask before we get into some some juicy anti-doping stuff about your current setup um just because i think it's quite interesting for the listeners is you've recently moved to a more self-coached approach just give us a yeah. a little bit of background about sort of what your training setup is what a typical week would yeah. look like look like and your reasons for okay. why you wanted to have a little bit more control over your training program. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, you know me, Kieran, I'm quite headstrong. Yes. I, uh, um, I, we, we could definitely not... describe Jake as being steadfast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I am. I've always had quite strong opinions about the way that an endurance runner should train. Yes. And, 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 and part of the appeal of running to me is, that sort of experiment of one of seeing how good you can be and, and how the have a, having control of my own training program is, it's a, it's a fun, it is a fun hobby for me and seeing how, if I do different things, how it affects me. And, but also, yeah. So I, I was coached by Alan's story for a couple of years, which was fantastic. And Alan's a great, great man with lots of, of insight. And, no, absolutely. And, and, he's, and he's my coach's coach. So I'm sure he has a, a decent little bit of yeah. influence or maybe even direct say over what I'm doing at the moment. So yeah, no, I coach. think, yeah, from when, when I was coached by him, he, he definitely was interested in all the stuff you were doing. Mm-hmm. But, um, so I learned loads from him, but I don't know, like I also sort of hate doing track sessions on my own. Like it's not, <laughs> I don't, it's not something I find particularly fun. Mm-hmm. So I've always wanted to kind of slot in with groups where I can. And that sort of meant having to be a little bit adjustable or adaptable with the exact specifics of the session. So mm-hmm. it kind of just made sense for me to take the reins and of my own training and say, right, I'll do, I'll join in with this group today and do their session. And then I'll make sure I get the other energy systems ticked off on a different day of the week. Doing exactly. different, and it, so, so, so it gave me the flexibility to say, right, 
I'll do exactly what you're doing today. That suits me fine. Rather than sort of having to say, right, Alan, is that okay if I join with, with yeah, this and then having and, to yeah, and him exactly. Saying, yeah, and him saying, actually, I'd like you to do this, and and so so the group that I now do lots of my Tuesday night sessions with is the Cottage Group, based in Battersea Park, uh, which is again another um, just fantastic collection of people. It's sort of run now by Mark Lloyd, who's Lewis Lloyd's dad. Okay, and, yeah. Yeah, he's just a really nice, nice man, and he. I think, um, I, I, think he I met run. him at the Tombridge Twilight meet this year, and yeah, no, yes. he's a really nice guy, really knowledgeable, really, yeah. really friendly, yeah. chatty. Yes, he's a, yeah, great. Guy. So he he kind of manages the group, and it was started by Phil O'Dell, and he still comes down occasionally. And really strong group of guys, uh, really good depth, lots of sort of sub thirty, ten k guys, and a good good number of sub 14, 5k guys now as well, and we do mm-hmm. just sort of typical. Uh, endurance winter sessions on a Tuesday night where lots of people run straight from work to the session and run straight home or whatever (laughs) it's quite good for the working guys yeah Um, definitely well Battersea in my mind is kind of the the working man's running mecca of London (laughs) it's yeah it is a good combination of factors isn't it the fact that you've got obviously a a historic kind of location quite an important distance running location for the UK and the fact that combined with that it has a 400 meter track slotted into it uh, yeah is is quite a nice quite you know, I, I to use the term mecca i think is quite interesting but <laughs> but yeah i yeah. agree with that it's really cool to have it all in one no, it's, a, it's a flat traffic free well-lit loop in fairly central london there yeah. aren't that many of those so no, it's well it's very play. very few yeah 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 but uh, no also awesome. that's what i do on tuesdays uh i usually do a few hills on thursdays so that's i'd call that like a half session Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not very intense kind of working on, on kind of form power that sort of thing exactly mm. exactly keep a bit of speed in my legs sometimes i do 200s on the track instead of hills but mm-hmm. something like that on a thursday night that's, that's interesting then, that you'd actually you do that in a way that doesn't actually produce a huge amount of fatigue because i think to most people hills is i'm gonna go and slog yeah. myself up 15 no, times yeah. a minute hills whereas for you it's more and i think yeah. this is the way that lydiard originally wanted hills to be run is that they're for bounding and power and for yeah just being able to yeah. get that strength into your legs rather than yeah. a specific endurance focused session so that that's it, interesting that you do hills that way because yeah. not a lot of people do i don't think no, at the moment it's good and the other thing about it kieran is that it's it's not emotionally or it's not draining it's not tiring no. it's not stressful it's, it, I just I mean, run it's almost hill. fun in a way yeah exactly it, <laughs> i never i'm never like getting myself into big oxygen debt or trying to run up threshold or anything like that it's mm-hmm. just running up the hill jogging back down running up the hill again well to well <laughs> yeah. to, to jump in in my, in my own training i've got for something that's coming up this weekend i went and ran a load of hills i want to say last thursday you know half a week ago something like that and having done it once before with kieran and done it at a kind of much more strenuous level because i wanted to try and impress him <laughs> um doing it on myself felt much easier because I, I almost feel like I didn't have the pressure of a pair of eyes watching me and expecting me to hit the exact same point on everything. <laughs> um, and and as a result, I can empathize a lot with what you're saying there is it feels much nicer to kind of go out and do it at your own pace and not really yeah. burn yourself out. So I'm glad yeah. I'm glad that I have something in common with someone who can run much better than me. <laughs> <laughs> not that yeah. we don't have anything in common, but no, it's, <laughs> I agree. Like hills, yeah. are, it is important on the hills to run by feel and not to dig yourself too much of a hole. So um, no, do continue with yeah. the kind of the rest of your yeah. week. 
Okay, we'll do. Um, and I always do the hills on my own. And that's a session I really don't mind doing on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's good. And 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 I actually think the other thing I'll just quickly say about the hills is that I used to get quite bad Achilles tendonitis, mm-hmm. and that was one of the reasons for starting the hills was to strengthen up my calves and ankles and Achilles tendons. And they've been absolutely revolutionary for me in terms of dealing with that issue and no, allowing and. and and now I can wear spikes and not be crippled the next day, which is nice. <laughs> no, that's uh, that's actually brilliant that you would say that because a lot of people, if they are experiencing tendonitis or sore calves or something like that, or you know, quite weak ankles, would shy away <laughs> from things like hills and things like track work. But yeah, it, it's it is something that actually running hills will actually improve your Achilles if you are well, nine times out of ten I can't say this for everybody but will actually improve your Achilles if you are suffering from something like tendonitis so it's really really good that you would say that yeah I think it's like the most specific form of strength training for Absolutely. a runner yeah um, and then sorry carry on with the week and then Saturday morning I'll do some kind of threshold or tempo running usually involving some or all of the bushy park run just like on my doorstep and a nice event to go to and gets me out the door for nine o'clock every Saturday morning. Yeah, no, that's, that is one of the really good things about parkrun is it's, if you're not there at nine o'clock is they're just going to go without you. So you might as well yeah. get there and you're nine times out of 10 going to have somebody to run with if you're, if you're running at, thre- well, actually perhaps not at your threshold pace. I mean, you'd be looking well, at. Actually, that, that, that's one of the good things about Bushy Park is actually there is usually someone running about five minute miling because mm-hmm. it's, it's such a, a well attended strong parkrun. So, that That's is true. Yeah, yeah. To find, so it's, it does work out quite well usually. <laughs> Whereas it's around here, it's a bit of a roll of the dice. If I wanted to show up to Parkrun to do a tempo, it could be. There's a couple of guys that can run at about five minute type of miling around here, but it's yeah. whether they show up or not. You know, you might catch them yeah. two or three times in the year. And yeah. but yeah. no, that's that is one of the great things about Bushy Parkrun. And any listeners who like yeah. to sort of collect park runs, I'm sure will have done Bushy, and it probably will be one of their favourite ones that they've done. Um, so fitting around those sessions, what kind mm-hmm. of easy, steady running type of things do you do? Do you do a long run on a Sunday? I do do a long run, but I don't place a massive emphasis on it. I just mm-hmm. run for sort of 90-ish minutes without... And I, and, and I think, again, anyone who knows me knows that I run very slowly most of the time. And it's rare that you'll see me and I'm running quicker than seven-minute miling, mm-hmm. unless I bump into you, Kieran, and, and I get t- dragged along <laughs> a little bit quicker for a few miles. I think, the, um, I think the one run that we did together, we were we were fairly sensible. I think we were 6.55, yeah. 6.50, something like yeah. that. Can, I can, I can even I can agree that. on that pace. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah. no, I'm, I, yeah. you and Sam would be great training partners for one another. Um, yeah, sounds like it. Um, uh, I run with my girlfriend Molly Renfer quite a yeah. lot. Um, Who, by the way, is a national class five k runner herself. Very, very, yeah. very strong runner. Um, she runs a little bit too fast for me, but not much too fast. <laughs> for me, so that's good. No, that's good. You, you don't want to be getting dropped by your girlfriend too often. No, it's, no. it's something that I've had to deal with as well. Uh, running with a Mick Woods coached athlete that loves to drop 620s sometimes on her runs. Um, but no, that's good. So you probably, what, run about an hour on your easy kind of days and then 90 minutes on Sundays? Yeah, that's about right. And, and you, do you take a rest day in 70. the week or do you like to just sort of carry on? No. I don't take no rest, rest days, days ever. <laughs> nice. I no like rest that. days. I like a brutal work worth ethic like that. <laughs> no, that's good. No days off. <laughs> no day. Hashtag no yeah. days off. That's a, and so that adds up to uh, what are you running somewhere seventy on a down week, ninety on a really high week, something like that for for miles per week. Oh, Kieran, no, nothing like that. No, no. I can't. I've never done a ninety mile week in my oh, life. Oh, really? No. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I I run uh, about 
60 to 70 miles a week okay. and actually i added it up uh recently coming to the end of the year and i this year i've just ticked over 3,000 miles for the year which is so i'll end up averaging like 62 miles uh, okay. per week <laughs> but it, but that but i guess that shows that i have actually been able to be quite consistent at that level for consistently the healthy year. for the entire year exactly which exactly. is exactly so and i've had down weeks so it shows there have been a few weeks that are a bit higher to average that over the whole 52 weeks so yeah Absolutely. And I assume an end of season break type of thing as well. Um, exactly. So, yeah, no, I mean, that's that emphasizes, especially since your performance at British Champs as well, like coming fifth in that field at a national championship just shows the importance of consistency that you don't have to be hammering, you know, 100 miles a week, running your steady runs at six minute miling. Like you can get there with a sensible approach as long as you make sure the sessions are quality and the recovery is where it needs to be you will be able to achieve your goals if you can achieve consistency at that level. I think to to jump in for, for again from hearing that, that screams like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I had it literally on the tip of my tongue. What's the <laughs> word beginning with um, D? Word you, beginning with D. Da, 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 um, well, it's not destructive. Di- it's definitely not a destructive training no. plan. <laughs> oh, this has really bugged me. I had it all right and you took too long to say what you were saying. Um, discipline, that's it. Discipline, Blimey. yeah. Anyway, that, that strikes me as somebody who, you know, when you say, talk about consistently training, getting the mileage averaging out throughout the year, that really shows that a disciplined performance will get you the results or a disciplined training plan will get you the results. Thank you. Yeah, I do. I do try. And one of the things that I try to be disciplined with is not training too hard, actually, mm-hmm. because I know myself quite well now and I've learned what works for me. But then when I see everyone around me, perhaps training harder than me or more than me the 10 that you know it's hard not it to get carried to away more. Type of thing. yeah exactly no i know exactly but what i mean. found that i've had most success by um yeah listening to my body signals uh, and yes yeah, yeah keeping stuff in control absolutely well consistency is key and listening to your body is key in this sport as is recovery and i think again like like we mentioned earlier being self-coached makes it kind of easier to do those sorts of things but moving on from running and getting into some anti-doping type of stuff, because I know that a lot of people will be quite keen to to hear what you have to say about this, because you have a, a wealth of knowledge on drugs in sport and anti-doping procedures and stuff like that. So let's just start off with what your role is in anti-doping and what kind of duties day-to-day that would involve. Okay. Uh, so I guess it's twofold, really. Like For my PhD, I'm an anti-doping researcher. Mm-hmm. And then for my job with Kingston, uh, I suppose I'm like an anti-doping administrator. So for the research side of things, one of my big interests is understanding why some athletes choose to compete clean mm-hmm. and some athletes choose to dope and trying to look at it from a fundamental uh, aspect of where people, you know, where people deviate on that path. And so almost the, the psychology behind it type yeah. of thing. Exactly. And That's what really the protective factors are to prevent it and what some of the risk factors are that can increase the likelihood of it. Mm-hmm. Is there anything um, that you and, could kind of share with listeners on kind of a, a somewhat, and this is speaking more for myself than anyone, a somewhat basic understanding of um, of the kind of things that go on to to make an athlete decide whether to or not to complete yeah. compete clean or to use yeah. PEDs? Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's, this is the trouble. It's, it's quite fundamental, it seems. Like uh, a lot of the reasons that, top top athletes choose to compete clean mm-hmm. it's because of the way they were brought up and all of the hours that their parents would have spent taking them to training and 
investing in their lives of athletes as athletes and then i think a lot of them they're not necessarily scared of being banned if they were to take drugs but they're mm-hmm. scared of the shame and the disappointment that they would bring upon themselves and, and their families and their friends if they were to do it. So, so internal think, factors are kind of more important it's, than it's, than it's the quite value based. Mm-hmm. I think so, yeah. Um, and then the smaller number of athletes I've spoken to who have used performance enhancing drugs, it's quite a variety of factors that seem to have led to that. Um, okay. I do think that money can be an influence. Massive, no, yeah, I'd be really inclined to agree, agree with you there. It seems like people, I mean, there's so much money involved in sports, maybe not so much in athletics, but in other sports <laughs> where <laughs> we'll, we'll stay away from the, the topic of funding in athletics because I'm sure we could talk about that for hours on end. Um, definitely. But yeah. yeah, money would definitely be a huge incentive to somebody who's sort of on the cusp of being, let's say, world class or a world medalist in a sport. Just having yeah, that, exactly. say, if you win an Olympic gold, the financial incentives behind that are absolutely massive, as well as the honour of being an Olympic champion. Yeah. So, 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 yeah. So, on the first, in the first hand, my PhD is focused on understanding that decision, mm-hmm. but then on the second hand, it's it's trying to get a sense from the athletes as to what new developments they would like to see in anti-doping. So, in the one testing of my, procedures, is that in everything? So. Okay. One of the big things that I'm, I've been an advocate for is the use of a dried blood spot as the matrix for doping controls instead of what we currently use, which is urine and a whole blood sample. Mm-hmm. It, so the, the, the new system would use a finger prick and then you'd spot a drop of blood on a card, which could then be sent to a lab and analyzed for performance enhancing drugs. So it would just make the whole process a much lot easier yeah. and less invasive and the science is kind of there now to do that, but okay. it's got to go through all the bureaucratic uh, process of so it's, um, it's kind of in the, and... it's kind of in the position where it's like it works, we know it works, but it has to be it has to go through all of the yeah. checks and be signed off by the right people exactly. type of thing. Yeah, yeah. no, that, that's that's really is, interesting it's, it's a, it's a, yeah, I mean, I've been I've been personally through both of those types of anti doping tests. I've had blood tests and I've had urine tests and. Neither of them are particularly pleasant. I'm more than happy to do it because I'm a huge believer in clean sport. I think that once you clean, like if you took the PEDs out of athletics and out of other sports, it would be in a far better state than it is at the moment. Um, not to not to uh, diss the state that it's in at the moment, but I'm a huge believer in clean sport, so I'm more than happy to do it. But neither of them are particularly pleasurable experience. I mean, no. You get people that are fainting having blood tests because they don't like needles. I'm not personally one of yeah. those, but nobody likes being pricked in the arm by a needle and having a bunch of blood taken out. And then, yeah, I mean, for listeners that aren't familiar with how a urine sample is taken, uh, how about I'll let you explain that because you'll probably be able to put it more affluently than I will. <laughs> and I'll let them decide for themselves why that's a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. Okay. Let's try. So <laughs> after a race or a match, you'll be approached by uh, someone with a clipboard who will then ask you to follow them and you'll be led to a small room and then you'll be asked to provide a urine sample. First, you'll fill in some forms, quite boring forms, and tick lots of boxes and declare any medications that you've taken recently. And then you'll go into a toilet with another person of your gender and you'll be asked to take your trousers down to below your knees and then they will directly observe the stream of urine 
leaving your body going <laughs> into a small plastic pot. Yes, and I've and also, then, when I've been tested, been told to lift my top up to yes, kind of chest sorry, height. I didn't mention that. Yeah, mm. it's the, so there's a clear view of, of the your urine. Whole, yeah, your body. whole kind of middle, including the reproductive <laughs> organs, yep. shall we call them, are yeah. uh, fully on display <laughs> for this stranger to, to watch you as you yep. urinate. And then you're taken back into the first room and asked to pour your urine into two different pots and asked to seal the two pots and then sign a few more forms and then you're kind of done. Um, but mm. yeah, it's, but it's as, invasive. as quickly as you've uh, described it there, it is sometimes a very long procedure. I mean, I, I don't know whether you've personally been tested in the past before, but I've had the first time I was ever tested, I was there for two and a half hours because I just couldn't go. It was oh. after... I, I think it was the say. inter-counties cross-country in 2012 it was the first time I was urine tested. And man, I was in there for so long. My first sample yeah. actually wasn't enough urine as well. So I had to then yeah. wait until I had to, I could go again. And yeah, uh, yeah it, it, I mean, it's a, it's a real kind of procedure. Whereas what you it were talking is. about with the, just the blood spot would yeah. be, and you'd be in and out in minutes. Yeah, it'd be a big step forward, I think, because yeah. yeah, like you say, you can't just pee on demand, can you? Like you need to need to go. <laughs> yeah, it'd be um, great if you could. Yeah, um, so that's kind of the process in a nutshell. And part of my job is going around to uh, rugby uh, clubs up and down the country and mm -hmm. ex explaining that process to the academy rugby players because they they do get tested, and we think it's important they know what to expect before they do get tested. No, definitely. I mean, it's it can be quite a surprise if you don't know what you're in for, and suddenly someone's saying, "Right, <laughs> I'm going to follow you into the bathroom and watch you, watch you go," kind yeah. of thing, or I'm going to jab this yeah. needle in your arm and take this blood, and exactly. you don't know why or what I'm doing with it. No. So, no. But if you refuse, all... I'm going to ban you from all sport for four years. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's. I think that harsh punishments are an essential part of the anti-doping procedure and I actually think that they're a bit soft at the moment. I don't know what your opinions are on that, if you have any. Yeah, I definitely do have opinions about that. And, um, and whether you're willing to share would, them as well, I suppose. Yeah, I would like to see life bans, mm -hmm. but I do also accept that they might be uh, very difficult to enforce legally. Yes. Um, well, I think, I'm not an expert on the legal side of things, I think but that it life does bans, seem like there are some difficulties with that. If they were to be enforced, it would have to be, you know, a very serious events with very, very damning evidence. Like, it would have to be, mm -hmm. you know, you'd have to be pretty certain to administer a life ban. But at the same time, yeah. I think that shorter bans that you can hand out for something, something like missing a test, if that was just an automatic, you know, couple of month ban... If that came at the wrong time yeah. of the year for you, like that could, you know, that could be seen as a punishment that could be potentially enough of a deterrent. So, say if you have somebody, yeah. if you're on a whereabouts system and somebody's knocking on your door and it's three months before the Olympic Games, you're more likely to update your whereabouts and be able to take that test if you have a big race, like say the Olympic Games coming up in the next couple of months. And if you miss that test, you'd then be banned automatically for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or yeah, something, yeah. I, I, I don't know. There's, I think that there needs to be more of a range rather than it's either a two- or a four-year ban. I think yeah. lifetime bans and I think also very short-time bans would be something maybe worth looking into. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't have really any involvement in anti-doping other than what I've read and what I've seen um, yeah. and what I've experienced yeah. so, personally. Well, 
Yeah. So another thing that we, we do in rugby is we run what we call the illicit drugs program. So I don't know if you're aware, but recreational drugs like cocaine and marijuana yes. are banned yes, in competition are. only. So if you tested positive for them after a match, then you'd be banned. If you tested positive for them during training, you wouldn't be banned. That I didn't um, actually know. Only, okay, so they're only banned in competition. They're not banned out of competition. Do you know so what if, we do? Gone, Sam. Sorry, I was just going to say. Do you know if that's something that's common across other sports as well? Uh, or do that's you, is that just globally. That's, yeah, okay, so that's, that's across globally all sports. across all sports. So that's the that's global rule: is that, is, is that because they're, they're they're basically stimulants, so they might mm-hmm. have some performance-enhancing effect in competition when you yeah want to yeah stimulate your nervous system or whatever. But they're not going to have any effect out of competition in the way that EPO or steroids might have. Yeah. So there's a number of substances beyond those recreational substances that are also banned only in competition, and they're mainly stimulants. That's so really interesting, that's, actually. So that yeah, so that's the anti-doping rule. In rugby, what we do is we also ban recreational drugs out of competition, and we ha- run our own testing system separate to the World Anti-Doping Organization or UK Anti-Doping. And we use hair as the sample. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, you can get them for pretty much anything. So, we, yeah, exactly. So, something like cocaine can actually stay in your hair follicles for up to three months. Mm-hmm. So, so we go around to the clubs, we take a few hairs from the players, and we run them in a lab, test them for yep, cocaine, marijuana, amphetamines, and ecstasy. And if they come back positive... We find them £5,000 for a senior player and £1,000 for an academy player. That's but we really don't good. publicly name them and we don't ban them. But in that way, we have massively reduced and almost eliminated recreational drug use in rugby, which at one time was a problem. And also, if we think to our own experience, Kieran, mm. if such a programme had been in place in athletics, someone like Luke Trainer might not now be facing what is likely to be quite a lengthy ban. He would have to have paid a fine and he would have obviously been punished. But No, exactly. Uh, the, he, he's he exactly who have... came to mind when you started speaking about that, actually, because I, I yeah. wasn't aware that it was not banned out of competition. So that must have been from an in-competition yeah. sample, which... Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's but, just stupid to make a mistake like that, isn't it? <laughs> well, I, yeah, but, a better I, know, yeah. I know Luke and I have a lot of respect for him as an athlete, but uh, yeah, it's a questionable decision for sure. Um, it definitely is. But, but I suppose that our programme tries to protect players from yes, exactly. addiction I mean, problems and deal with it rather than just banning them from the sport. Um, exactly. And, it's, and, and, and it is also to stamp out drug use in rugby. And, that, and we've, it's quite effective at doing that, given the longer detection window in hair and stuff like that. And I think it also promotes that kind of, that message that athletes are human, like you're going to go out and celebrate a victory. And like, if you get a little bit carried away and you do something stupid, you'll be punished, but you won't have your career taken away from you for a brief period yeah. of time, like somebody like Luke has. And it's, yeah, I like I do feel for him a little bit because I think he made an honest mistake there, and he wasn't trying to perform like enhance his performance. But at the same time, like he do, he does deserve to be punished, but maybe not quite as severely as he is facing. But moving on to punishments and and all of that sort of thing, what I kind of want to get onto is athletics more specifically. And your opinions mm-hmm. on the elite level specifically within athletics and just whether you think there's any hope really for clean athletes at the highest level yeah. based off of what you've seen. Yeah. 
yeah that's really one of the big goals of my research is to show that you can be a world champion in athletics without doping and that's mm -hmm. something i believe fundamentally in and i think it's also a really important message to spread because when we get to a situation where it's publicly or widely accepted that you have to dope to become the best in the world or something it increases people's inclination to do that absolutely do you know what i mean yeah so so perhaps optimistically perhaps naively but also based on some evidence i i do think you can be really really exceptional as a long distance runner and in all other events in athletics without using any performance enhancing drugs and, that, and that's based off, 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 off speaking to lots and lots of very very good runners well i think just to jump in you know and and the the public relation that it creates as well when somebody's been you know clean or, or been proved clean or you know our, our, i'm thinking of usain bolt as a good example obviously sprinting is one of those really hot kind of the public opinion on it is oh well probably you know four out of ten of the lineup or six out of eight of the lineup are all got something in them and then you look at usain mm -hmm. bolt who obviously was massively successful i think probably the most successful sprinter ever and he must have spent a hell of a lot of time and money being tested for everything under the sun and every single time came back clean to hold his legacy intact. So it is, I think what you've said there, that it is more about, you know, training and how much you want it and all of those things show that you can be exceptional without needing to pump, pump something into your body. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose one of the difficult things for clean athletes is that however many tests you pass, you still can't necessarily prove that you're clean. I don't no, think definitely. because you can you can only prove somebody are... isn't clean. The, the only person that knows that you're clean is you. Like, I mean, yeah. I know that you can run twenty eight thirty seven, for example, for the ten thousand meters as a clean athlete. Any faster mm -hmm. than that, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I'm pretty sure there's people out there that are quite a lot more talented than me and work as hard, if not harder, than I do, or train smarter, or whatever. Just mm -hmm. respond in a better way to training so i agree with you yeah. i think you can reach a very high if not the highest level in athletics and in endurance athletics as a clean athlete but the prevalence yeah. of drugs within athletes with peds especially in the endurance events at the moment it is quite discouraging for a lot of people and it does kind of give that feeling of hopelessness but i mean just mm -hmm. to it's a kind of a, a, fu a fun in quotation marks kind of kind of question what kind of percentage would you say of endurance medals over the last olympic cycle so over kind of the last four years do you think mm -hmm. from major champs were done by clean versus athletes using peds so you've asked me medalists over the last olympic cycle yes you have to, with medalists. You have to or, I mean, if, if you're more comfortable with or, finalists or participants finalists. that's that's absolutely okay fine as well. okay yeah so let's say finalists in global championships over the past four or so years. Yeah. So you have to accept that my opinion is just an opinion and you take it with a pinch of salt, really. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, good disclaimer. But, I like that's that. a very good disclaimer. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm definitely one for an opinion. I'm very opinionated yeah. on this subject and probably am not giving the full kind of the full beans of my opinion because I think it might be a little bit upsetting to some people and maybe a little bit pessimistic. But yeah. go ahead. Yeah. I'm going to go with somewhere between 10 and 15% of all finalists may have at one time used performance enhancing drugs. But okay. it's a stab in the dark. So, yeah, don't. <laughs> no, it's just it's interesting to get an opinion from yourself as somebody that is quite heavily involved with anti-doping and with 
you know, you've interviewed clean and unclean athletes and, you know, you've just had more of an exposure to that world than I have. I've had an exposure to elite athletics, perhaps not on the the highest level of making world finals and things like that, but on a couple of levels kind of lower than that, kind of the national type of level. Um, And yeah, I mean, I, I personally probably would have predicted a higher number than that. So it's actually really Mm -hmm. encouraging to hear that, you know, the sport is perhaps cleaner than what a lot of people think. And one of the funny things is Kieran is that the, um, the better you get and we get at running, Mm. I almost think the, the, the more, the less likely we think doping is at the top level. And when you speak to guys who have made world finals and know that they have done it clean, then their perception becomes actually, I'm not sure anyone's doping because I think I can be everyone. Um, so, so the, the, the far, almost the faster you get clean, the more it instills you with the belief that it can be done at the very highest level clean. And yeah. I think for Joe Public, who's a million miles away from achieving a world championship final, yeah, it no, seems see it, like everyone think, oh, they're all on drugs. drugs. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Like, oh, there's no way a human could run under 10 seconds for the 100 meters or 27 yeah. minutes for the 10,000 meters. Yeah, they must all be, yeah. you know, doped up mm-hmm. to their eyeballs. But, I, I think, though, yeah. to, to jump in, though, and I think public relation is a hugely important thing with, let's say, perceptions of who's clean and who's not and mm-hmm. 10%, 15%. I would maybe say that even with something like social media, is that a good thing now? Because we have more access into the windows of people's lives. You know, people you know, like athletes. I'm thinking of some of the boxers that I follow who are quite active on social media. I'm sure athletes are as well. You know, we have a bigger window into more of their lives. And I know that a lot of them are quite prevalent with showing them actually doing drug tests when someone comes at not coming, you know, comes to knock on their door at eight o'clock in the morning whilst they're still having breakfast. You know, they, they're keen to show it off and that can only be a good thing. I would have thought. No, you're right. I can't yeah, tell you how I'd, much I've seen yeah. one Mo test by Mo Farah posted on Instagram. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think yeah, athletes uh, telling the narrative of their their training journeys is is good and is one of the things that can be done to yeah have believable role models. Absolutely, no, I couldn't agree with you more. So, on that positive note, we're going to now move on to a slightly more negative note because I think it would be quite interesting okay. to get your opinion on some of these things. Um, we'll <laughs> ru- we'll go through them a little quicker because we are we've kept you for quite a long time. Yeah. But I just want to get some of your thoughts on some of the kind of big news doping scandals that have come out this year because there have been a fair few of them so the ones that i've got written down here and kind of pick and choose and riff on whatever you think (laughs) might be interesting on these ones but i've got the whole the whole salazar dr brown and nike oregon project thing i've got the fact that there's been so many and proportionate to other nations this is kenyans being caught doing EPO mm-hmm. in the endurance side mm-hmm. of things this year it seems more than ever have been banned mm-hmm. for EPO we've got Christian yeah. Coleman and his whole debacle with the whereabouts thing missing three tests being banned and then yeah. being unbanned and coming back to win the world championships and then we yeah. have what came out recently is that Russia were officially banned for four years of competition so um yeah. just I know that's a lot to kind of digest and <laughs> spit back yeah. out but I'm a little bit conscious of time yeah. just yeah, give us some of your thoughts on that or anything that you think okay. might be interesting for, for kind of listeners to to absorb. Okay, so the Mo Salazar, Dr. Brown stuff, I think for me personally, there's a difference between playing by the rules and playing by the spirit of the rules. Mm. And I think that group may have at least tried, well, they haven't played by the rules because Salazar's been banned, but it seemed like they were always trying to just play by the rules 
rather than playing by the spirit of the rules. And I'm not upset that Salazar has been banned and has strayed too close to that line. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you um, more there. I think, if, if am I right in thinking it's the El Cartanine stuff where they crossed that line and that's what they were eventually kind of nailed with? I think so, yeah. It, it all got quite technical, didn't it? The actual it judgment. Um, um, I haven't read yeah, the big, uh, whatever it was, 100 and something no. page report, but... <laughs> I read some of it, and yeah. Uh, but I think also possibly the testosterone experiment got him in trouble because mm. yeah, testosterone is a banned substance and yes. um, I think he was tampering with doping control by testing the limits that would detect a positive test and that was another of the things that he was charged with because no, there definitely. are 10 anti-doping rule violations it's not just presence of a prohibited substance you can also get done for attempted use or tampering with doping control or prohibited association that yes there's, there's a list of 10 things that you can Which, be banned yeah. for well, salazar's he, probably got a fair few out of 10 <laughs> for he might, he might has not. and has not been convicted on uh, that's just yeah. a matter of opinion but no what I, was I the think second pretty, thing you asked me about we're pretty in line so uh i just basically i think i don't know if it's because it's been made more public in the news but it seems like mm-hmm. there's been a ton of kenyan runners that have been banned from uh, apo yeah. this year I mean, most notably, yeah. you've got Kittum, who broke the world's half marathon record. Yeah. And you've got, yeah. um, what's his name, the guy who came third just in front of Kyle Langford in the World Championship 800 meters. Just what are your thoughts yes. on that and Kenya as a nation? Maybe should we start looking into them yeah. going the way of Russia, potentially? Or, yeah, okay. what are your thoughts? Okay, so first thoughts, let's be positive about it. I think the Athletics Integrity Unit are doing their job. And this shows that they're doing their job quite well. Yes. Um, Anti-doping in Kenya is logistically probably not the easiest, and I think they are starting to get to grips with it and having some impact on the doping problem there. Should they be banned like Russia? I don't think so. And the difference, I think, is that Russian doping was institutionalized. And by that, I mean they had a, a system whereby positives were concealed and it wasn't rogue elements within them it was the system itself that was corrupt and broken Mm -hmm. it wasn't a group of athletes going off and doping it was the russian anti-doping agency itself was involved it was more systemic and more um organized and fundamental than the doping in kenya seems and that's not to try and minimize the issue in kenya which is clearly and obviously an issue yeah and i think um, i think we're seeing more and more of how much of an issue it is because of, like you said, those improvements yeah. that have been made to the anti-doping systems in Kenya. But yeah. I, I do it, agree. I, I honestly couldn't agree with you more on the fact that the people that are calling for Kenya to perhaps start going the way of Russia or to have those investigations in, it's not a state-sponsored yeah. doping program. The fact is that these people are, these are hardworking, just kind of yeah. normal everyday people that happen to be very talented runners that are being led astray by others within yeah. the system it's not a it's yeah. not yeah, at least there's no evidence of the of the kenyan doping being anything institutional yes, there's zero exactly. evidence of that whereas there was really strong evidence in the russian case exactly and, and that kind i'm of, not i'm actually yeah sorry yeah i was going to say that kind of that kind of covers the whole russian thing a little bit as well um i mean yeah. it's just i don't think there's much more to say other than they've been banned for four years no. and it's a bloody good thing yeah yeah although you know, does that ban actually go far enough? It's not a blanket ban of all Russian athletes. And that's what some people have been calling for, mm. you know, not even allowing neutral, authorised neutral athletes to compete. Um, and I think in the case of Russia, where it has been demonstrated that it's so 
institutionalized. There is an argument to be made to say you do need to completely ban them just to give them that impetus to say, right, we have to change the way we operate, change the way our sporting systems work, which for years it seems like have been, you know, doping has been a, a central piece of how their sports programs have functioned. And maybe only a total ban of all Russian athletes from international competition would be strong enough to get them to change their ways because it doesn't feel from the outside like they have really like undergone really, meaningful changes. Yeah, like they've really kind of learned their lesson type of thing. It's like when you get a little doesn't kid to apologise and they're just like, I'm sorry, but don't actually mean it. It feels a bit like a slap on the wrist. <laughs> yeah, me. no, um, I, I, so, I'm inclined to agree yeah. with you there. So uh, yeah, last little doping case that's just been in the news. I mean, Christian Coleman... He's just been mm-hmm. a bit. He was just a bit of a silly boy, wasn't he? <laughs> he just didn't didn't update yeah. his whereabouts system. Which, uh, briefly for yeah. the listener, the whereabouts system. I'm sure Jake probably could explain it better than I could. But essentially, you have an hour a day dedicated to anti-doping. You have to tell them where you're going to be every day for that hour. And if they want to, they can come and test you. This could be at 12 noon, or it could be at seven o'clock in the morning. You just have to make yourself available. And they have to know where you are, wherever you are in the world, for one hour a day. And that's for elite type of athletes, whoever it is that you're, I think it's your national doping governing body yeah. that chooses those athletes. Christian Coleman mm-hmm. failed three, or well, failed to be present for three of these tests, which equates to a failed test. He was then reinstated into the world championships and was able to run and won those world championships. My personal thoughts on this, uh, we'll get your thoughts as well in a second, Jake, is I don't think he should have been allowed to run. I think the whereabouts system is simple enough and easy to work enough. And missing a test is hard enough that there's no excuse for missing three within the period of time that he missed three tests. And I don't know a huge amount of detail about the case, but from the detail that I know, I think that he should be serving a two-year ban. Um, What are your thoughts? Well, so all of the cases you mentioned frustrate me. And this one mm. frustrates me as much as any of them because it just reflects badly on Christian Coleman. But exactly, it also reflects I, badly on I do USA believe that he's kind of clean. Uh, like, I do believe that he's clean as well. I don't think Christian Coleman is the type to dope. It's just, he's just, I don't know, he's just messed up. It's, I mean, yeah. So, yeah. So he he has been obviously been incredibly inept at, being where he is supposed to be to, to even miss one test is quite difficult two is really difficult and three again yet yeah, organizational skills terrible and it mm. he will have his reputation damaged by it but actually if you are technically applying the rules he didn't according to the letter of the law he didn't miss three in a year by the technical def- definition of what they're classing a year as in the anti-doping rules and they shouldn't have been written that way. And I think they have now changed them so that if it you do miss three, 12 months in any 12 months, date one window, to date three. Yeah, exactly. But given that as the rules were written at the time, he didn't break the rules. He should never have been named publicly. And no, US no, doping should that. not allowed of that to have happened. And in that sense, I do have some sympathy for him in that he wasn't treated according to the rules as they were written at the time. So it just reflects badly on him and US anti-doping and it it damages the reputation of anti-doping and it's just a bad thing all around. Yeah, I think um, to, to, to jump in and, and give my opinion on it, I think 
it's actually it's just quite disrespectful on a lot of on a lot of different levels when you consider what Christian Coleman is doing in terms of carving his position into let's be honest kind of one of those golden events of say the Olympics or the world championships you know as a sprinter there's a lot of eyes and there's a lot of ears on the people that win those races and he's proving himself to be successful so for him to whether he's doing anything illicit or not for him to disrespect and not even show up to these tests when it on paper it's such a simple thing to be able to do yeah, well you've just got to be in your house at the right time it, exactly the door. It, it seems quite disrespectful to something that is incredibly you know it's incredibly prestigious to be on that world stage in an event like you know in a blue ribbon event and i think to to miss that it's disrespectful for the fans it's disrespectful to kind of the heritage of the event as well and he's disrespecting himself because like I say let's say that he yeah and like Kieran said let's say that he is clean he's you know he's never touched any drugs in his life but if he's going to let himself down all of a sudden those accusations will begin to creep out from the audience and he doesn't you know and if he is clean then he doesn't deserve that so I think to summarize maybe just to kind of maybe finish on that point and maybe you can just jump in on your two cents before we move on is it's just it's ultimately it's just dis- i think it's just disrespectful to something that you know so many people would give everything to be in that position and for him to do something as silly as not be tested when they've asked him to be tested yeah i think it's just, yeah i think it's just disrespectful personally yeah. no I, c- I couldn't agree more i think the best way to summarize christian coleman is he needs to be very careful in terms of the media is that he doesn't get portrayed as a justin gatlin because for the sake yeah. of the sport, we want him to be the next Usain Bolt. Big time. So mm-hmm. I think that is a nice little summary of Christian Coleman. And the last yeah. little thing that I want to touch on about doping with you, and just because it's drum a theme, roll, drum roll, drum roll. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a theme of the podcast, we can't go an hour without talking about it. Is technical doping the Nike shoes? You said you ran in them. <laughs> How do you feel? I mean, yeah. do you think that they provide... Do you a- feel like a filthy cheat that doesn't deserve any success <laughs> is what Kieran's trying to yeah, say. Yeah. Well, <laughs> does that shiny new... Well, it wasn't actually a PB, so it's okay. Your PB it still comes from, no. from regular shoes, which yeah. I think actually is quite an interesting, an interesting yeah. point to go off of because it means that you've not had that experience of running and putting the shoes on and automatically running a crazy PB. I mean, do you, no, I what are your thoughts? Do you think that they provide as much of an example as the hype is kind of portraying them to have? Do you think that there is call for them to be investigated further and on a more serious level looking into potentially sanctioning them? Or, yeah, what are your, what are your kind of thoughts on them? Yeah, I'm, I'm quite conflicted about them, really. Like, mm. when I run, when I hopefully run a 5,000-meter PB or a 10,000-meter PB, I would like to know that it's because I'm better, not because my shoes are better. Yes. And I'd also like to know that I'm better than someone who ran that time in the 90s or the early 2000s because I'm better than them, not because I have better shoes than them. <laughs> so from that sense, it's kind of disappointing that the game seems to have changed in terms of this piece of equipment providing mm-hmm. a decent advantage. So it does lose a little bit of that purity of the sport, which I think is one of the things that attracted all of us to it in the first place. Definitely. Uh, no. I, I mean, I, my personal opinion, which is, is well documented on here, and I'm sure you can probably guess what I'm about to say, Sam knows very well, is that I, I do think that it damages the integrity of the sport because it's less of you and more of something mm-hmm. that's been manufactured to help you. Yeah. But I'm also well aware that it might just be one of those big paradigm shifts within the sport, similar to when they yeah. moved from 
a gravel track to a tartan track, times obviously got a lot quicker. I mean, if you look at the times that somebody like um, like Jim Ryan, for example, ran in the mile, think about how much faster mm-hmm. he may have been if he was able to run on yeah. a tartan track when he was in his sort of in his best years. I mean. Phew, who knows what he would have run in high school? Like he's already yeah. he already was fast enough, and it may be a case of there's going to be times before carbon fiber shoes and times after carbon fiber shoes, just as there was times before tartan tracks and times after tartan tracks, because it's obviously a lot quicker to run on that type of surface. It's a lot quick. Yeah. It's a lot easier to run quicker in these shoes, but I, for me, I'm not going to wear them until there's kind of a a clearer kind of these are this is the future this is you have to wear them to keep up type of thing yeah and it's seems... i do think though it's one of it's one of those things that once you start it's it's quite it'll be quite difficult to go back now definitely do you know what i mean it may and that's one of my thoughts is, is it may have already gone kind of mm-hmm. too into the mainstream and it may yeah. it may be it's not a case of like those swimming suits for example that they had um, in the Olympics in I think it was 2008 where everybody yeah. went out and set world records and then yeah, they banned was. them pretty much yeah. straight away before they were able to get into kind of the you know the grassroots type of yeah. level whereas I mean I've seen people wearing next percents at parkrun I mean they're like they're everywhere now the front of a race yeah. you better yeah. believe 80 out of the first 100 people in any race is probably going to be wearing those shoes yeah so it it may have gone too far I mean and the nature of road running is slightly different to swimming, isn't it? Where mm. you, it's a mass participation thing, isn't it? So do we have one rule that applies only to the elite athletes saying they can't wear the shoes, but we can't really enforce that rule to the masses. And if they're all standing yeah. on the start line, it would just be a bit of a weird situation that the people on the third and fourth row had the best equipment. No, I, the people I, on the first and second row. Is, absolutely. Yeah. And then what do you do when somebody makes kind of a big jump from the grassroots exactly. level up to the the yeah. elite international type of level which i mean it's, it happens all the time in our sport especially with people joining the sport later and later yeah. in life you've got examples of yeah. people like graham rush for example i think was quite late to to start mm-hmm. running and is now an international athlete um yeah no it's yeah. It, it is a difficult one but we won't dwell on shoes too much because I talk about it enough on this podcast. <laughs> I, I think, I think, and maybe um, you could join us again sometime. But I think a opportunity to do a whole pod, really digging into these shoes and hearing Kieran rant for an hour, would be quite, quite a good, oh, man. quite it'd a good t- topic. It'd be tough to keep the time down on that one. <laughs> it would have to be like a five-part series. An- anyway, <laughs> moving on. Yeah, so we've got our kind of final four questions that we ask to okay. anyone that we have on the podcast. It's actually only been one person so far and the two of us, but <laughs> you're our second guest and going to be the fourth person to try these questions. So the first one that we ask is, what is your proudest athletic achievement? doesn't have to necessarily be in running, but just an achievement that you've had related to sports that you're the most proud of. I don't have any very proud of sporting achievements other than running so it's going to have to be in running i'm afraid uh, <laughs> that's all right i'm just i'm waiting I'll for the go. day when somebody comes on and is like yeah i can dunk a basketball from like 10 <laughs> feet from the hoop um i'll go with i might be having some recency bias here but i'll go with fifth place in the british championships um, was i was really cool. pleased with that one no that was that was an awesome run and to have been in that race and see you finish so well and yeah no, I, I definitely that stands out to me as probably the best performance that i've seen from you and um, and sure. so the next question that we ask is what are your favorite shoes to run in uh this can be for a race it could be a pair of spikes or just something Ooh. you like to run a lot of mileage in 
Okay. Um, I will go with the New Balance 880. Uh, New Balance, my yeah. girlfriend works for New Balance and she gets, gets a good discount, discount on those. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they're a good shoe, which I've been wearing for the last, past couple of years and haven't have given me any problems. So good, awesome. solid trainer. There we go. A good shoe and brownie points with the girlfriend. Uh, the next question that this is my favorite of them is build your dream dmr team now being from the from america you know what the dmr is just as a a prompt to our listeners a dmr is a distance medley relay consisting of a 1200 meter 400 meter 800 meter and one mile leg made up of you know four different runners passing a baton around it doesn't have to be all runners you can chuck in celebrities (laughs) or anybody that you like i'm we had some we had some pretty interesting ones when we did ours. Um, my teammate, when we interviewed him, actually included a couple of his teammates as well from Iona. So. As well okay. as LeBron James. As, as well. well as LeBron James is, is on his team. So it's just whoever you okay. think would be fun to see in a DMR. Is this a men's DMR or is this a mixed DMR? We'll go mixed. Yeah, 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 anyone you like. Any human mixed. being. Um, you can Any probably chuck your dog being. in there as well if you like. <laughs> There's no rules. Yeah. No rules. Okay. He would okay. have to carry the baton around in his mouth or collar or something. There. <laughs> this is a tricky one. I'm not quite sure what I'm aiming for here, whether I'm aiming for absolute domination or whether just a really fun fun team. Yeah, um, it's, it's, see, that's the thing. I mean, you could pick all the world record holders and then just chick, I don't know, chuck Boris Johnson on your mile leg or something. <laughs> <laughs> You've ruined it then. Um, okay, let's go Jess Judd on the 1200. Okay. I think she is a bit of a... She's just so old school. Um, I love the way she goes about her running. Yeah, you know you're um, going to get 100% out of her on any given Exactly, day. yeah. 1,200, That is, you want to grind that leg out. So, okay, let's let's put Jess Judd leading us awesome. off. Awesome, um, I like it. 400 runners. Now, okay, okay, here's one. Let's go Boris Berrien, my former teammate in Big Bear. And like he it. ran 45 second, 400 in high school. And honestly, he's like freakishly fast and freakishly athletic and like he, we were messing around doing weights once he slam dunked the medicine ball on the concrete basketball court that we were doing our weights on and it was a feat of true athleticism oh, Jesus. that's incredible so if we ever get yeah. Bar- if we ever get boris on the podcast that's probably going to be his proudest athletic achievement because <laughs> yeah. that's incredible yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah no he's, he's in the olympics so yeah <laughs> exactly there you go <laughs> why didn't he get so, a medal yeah, so- for slam dunking a medicine ball that's what i want to know. <laughs> we'll have to make one and send it to him no that's i mean that's a good 400 meter leg because you imagine okay. he'd get in a relay and it, like, yeah he'd, he'd probably just be able to go for it and would probably give you the bat yeah. and a million miles in the lead. So, okay, 800 meter leg. Who have you got on there? 800 meter leg. Okay, let's have a little think about this one. <laughs> oh, someone that I like over 800 meters. It might have to be Rudisha in full flow. I know it's usually an indoor event, which might not be his thing, but Rudisha in full flight is, is hard, oh, it's, it's hard yeah, to top. It's, it's beautiful. And he would, it is, yeah, no, exactly. He would give us a, a good a good position for the last leg and, <laughs> and now then how about on the last leg yeah or okay uh let's go a former lobo with a fantastic tradition in the indoor mile lee emmanuel who's uh yeah one of my running heroes who won the nca indoor mile 
twice in a row. I was going to say, yeah, um, you you have a few options for former Lobos that are indoor yeah. mile specialists. Yeah. <laughs> Josh so Kerr could have slotted in there very nicely. Quite too, easily. We'll, we'll, we'll give Josh Kerr as a reserve, a reserve for yeah. his first he reserve. because He could different legs. Exactly. He could slot into probably any one of those and do just as well yeah. as anybody else. So, no, yeah. I like it. Go, I like that's it. a good DMR cool. team. Uh, so, our final question is... Not really much to do. Well, it's absolutely nothing to do with running other than the person that it's regarding. And it's just for a bit of fun is, do you think you could beat Elliot Kipchoge in a fight slash boxing match? Easily. He's tiny. Yeah, there we go. I, see, no I like that. Everyone else that we've asked has been like, oh, no, I wouldn't want to fight him. <laughs> Gee, you've come straight in and said, yeah, I'll knock him out. <laughs> I love it. That's a great answer. <laughs> all right yeah, well i myself. think that wraps us up quite nicely jake's gonna knock out kipchoge if he ever steps <laughs> <laughs> well yeah no that's been really really informative having you on jake it's been great to talk about your running career and your career in anti-doping and some really really good insightful things that you've been able to share with us so thanks very much for coming on the podcast and yes thanks so much yeah no i'll uh i'll see you soon with us both of our striped yeah. vests on running around yeah a road or track or probably not a muddy field for me but no yeah thanks very much for coming on it's been great to have you Jake. thank you for having me it's it's been good fun cheers thank you jake so a really really fascinating insight from jake and i personally found it amazing to listen to his story kind of throughout his running career and obviously going over to america and coming back is something i've experienced with you but to hear somebody who's gone from uni in the uk to uni in the us and then come back and jumped into something as intensive as anti-doping with a phd yeah my hat goes off no absolutely huge thanks first of all to jake for coming on the show and yeah he's really had a fascinating and very successful journey through athletics and academics and it's really great to hear from him and the fact that he provides us with such a good insight into the world of anti-doping and you know provide you guys the listeners with such a such a good like kind of deep look into into that world and into some of the side of athletics and the side of running that perhaps isn't often seen and spoken about for the everyday runner yeah and i think doing it in such an eloquent and professional manner as well is really a nice way to approach it because you could have somebody who gets maybe a bit too big-headed about it and goes this person's doing that and x y and z but to hear somebody who's involved in trying to move technology forward but also has experience in a field which you know his personal experience with running I, I think it's a you know it's a it's an all-rounder it's a home run in terms of yeah absolutely no he's, he's got a very good story and yeah it was, it was a pleasure to have him share that with us I hope that you guys also shared shared within that pleasure and enjoyed listening to what Jake had to say Thank you very much for sticking with it on this slightly longer episode. We'll see you next time for, I don't know, what's our next episode going to be? I think we've got several things we can talk about. So yeah. I, I think some pod, pod ideas and hopefully the listeners can hold us accountable to these. I think my thoughts in the build up to the marathon mm. is something that we can talk about. Obviously, we touched on technical doping and shoes and things like that. Oh, we've got to get that shoe podcast out there. I think that, <laughs> we've that's, just that's, got to that's, do one, some that's one to do as well. Um and obviously just maybe a look back on 2019 and a look ahead to 2020 yeah definitely yeah maybe a christmas special don't hold us accountable to that one (laughs) but we'll see if we get time and inspiration and if there's anything that you want to hear from us on the podcast anything that you want to talk about feel free to give us a comment 
or reach out to us on social media or email. We're both very easy to contact, I would say. And also don't forget to leave us a five-star review, subscribe to the podcast, and even if you feel the need to write something to us, chuck us a comment. You can listen to us on Apple, what is it, Apple Podcasts? Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, and we're still throwing them up on YouTube as well. So plenty of plenty of places to listen, plenty of ways to get in touch. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. We've taken up of enough of your time, so... This has been Steadcast and thank you very much for listening.